I'm sure many of you remember what first love was like. What first love felt like. Um, when you could hardly imagine uh, a life without that special someone that you uh, couldn't stand being without. Um, it's that feeling of, of your heart sort of being, you know, a, a flutter at the very sight of, of him or her, you know. Or you, you hear the name and you're like, ah, you know, that kind of, that kind of feeling, you know. Um, I mean, not that I ever did that, but um, I certainly felt that way, yes. We've all experienced that. We've all felt that. We all know what that is like to have that first love for somebody. Now contrast that with the opposite. You know, time passes, life happens, you experience the, the weight of sin in a and broken world, and uh, and feelings like betrayal, <laughs> distrust. What happens when things like an affair are brought to light in a relationship? and betrayal happens, and there's tension, and there are problems, and instead of feeling like, I can't stand not to be with that person, you feel like, I can't stand to be with that person. What happens between innocent and joyful wedding day and the time when divorce papers are signed? Or how about, for example, the difference between the sort of unmitigated joy, like the blessing and joy and experience of watching a baby being born, and then many years later, experiencing that parental frustration of that smart-alecky kid who is now a young teenager who has nothing but negative things to say. What, what happens in between those kinds of things? I think what happens in those cases, divorced spouses frustrated parents, what happened was a loss of one's first love. What was once outright passion and enthusiasm for someone became duty, chore, hardship, boring. Maybe this is how you feel right now in your relationship with God. Maybe what was once in a relationship with God, youthful passion and enthusiasm and flame and fire for being with God. It's like you couldn't get enough of this thing. What happened with that versus I'm pretty much content to hear for 30 minutes on a Sunday when I can make it to church. What happened in that transaction? How does fire and passion and enthusiasm become drudgery and annoying? An act of duty instead of an act of desire. We all experience that and, and have been in that place of that tension. And Revelation, in the middle of that tension, says to us, perk up, sit up, listen up. Revelation is smelling salts for the in-between world where we experience frustration and drudgery and hardship and betrayal and distrust. Revelation 2, 1-7 to today comes to us with the solution 
for life like that. And this is in your study notes. I wanted you to see this. This is sort of an overview of this whole passage here in Revelation 2, 1 to 7, as we'll talk about first love today. It says this. This is in your study notes. Revelation 2, 1 to 7, teach that the great commandment matters to God. We'll talk about that great commandment a little bit later. It says, Jesus identified our greatest obligation as, as wholehearted, circle that word if you're a note taker, wholehearted love for God. And that's where we'll find the great commandment later in Matthew 22 if you want to look it up. Jesus identified our greatest obligation as wholehearted love for God, which declares to us that God is not pleased by dutiful obedience that does not flow from genuine love. If you want to know how to please God, it's not just out of duty that doesn't come out of a place of love. We'll look at that later on here. So follow along as we read this whole passage together in Revelation 2, and then we're going to unpack it a little more verse by verse as we go along. Look at this, Revelation 2, 1 to 7. It says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Verse 2, he says, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first if not i will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent yet this you have you hate the works of the nicolaitans which i also hate he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers i will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of god Now jump back to verse 1 here. First we see in verse 1, this section, verses 1 to 3, and then also verse 6, where the church is commended. We'll see three little parts here in this section of the church being commended. it's, It's commended, meaning it's praised and it's applauded by Christ. It's like he's saying, yep, good job. These are the things that that you've been doing well. It opens with these words that sort of reiterate, it restates that what we're about to hear is by the authority of Christ. That's the first part of your outline there. The first blank is the word authority. The church is commended in verse 1 by the authority of Christ. So look at verse 1 here. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. This is symbolic of the authority of Christ. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, this vision, this heavenly, this sort of uh, off the, the charts of our everyday experience kind of vision of the risen Christ in chapter 1. And it immediately precedes this passage today. It says this in, in chapter 1. This is the vision of the risen Christ in verses 12 through 16. This is the authority of Christ and what it looks like even now as he's risen, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, this is John talking, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a fi- in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters and in his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength that's the risen christ who is writing here to this church in Ephesus. And this church is the symbolic golden lampstand here. And he is walking among them and applauding their works. Now let's see why they're being praised by him. There are two main things, and they're both mentioned twice. The first is endurance in persecution. Look at verses 2 and 3 there. We'll get to endurance in persecution here. And then also gifts of discernment in verse 2 and 6. Those are the next two blanks in the outline here. Uh, endurance and discernment. These are the two, weak, the two works for which the church was applauded by Christ. He said, good job with these things. Now look at verses 2 and 3 here for the endurance part first. It says, I know your works. If you're taking notes, if you're a circler, circle that, word, that phrase, I know, or I know your works. Uh, that happens all throughout the next uh, few weeks of sermons here. I know, I know, I know. Uh, Jesus says, I know your works. I know your tribulation. I know where you dwell. I, I know you. This is a, a, a phrase of intimacy. It's a phrase that means to say that Jesus intimately walks among us and sees and knows what's going on in your life in a way that pierces That description of the risen Christ there says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees what's going on. He knows the score for real, even better than we do. So this phrase shows that that he sees them, that that he's the one who holds these seven stars and the seven golden lampstands, which represent the churches. So if Jesus knows, let me ask you this question. If Jesus is intimately aware let me suggest, for example, that, that if we had a worship service where perhaps the governor of Tennessee came, how would your behavior in worship be different? We'd probably, you know, we'd probably have some security guys around and we'd, we'd maybe dress up a little more and the red carpet would be out there and, and, and there'd be this sense in which we those of us who are participating here in worship would be a little more careful about our behavior on Sunday morning, wouldn't we? Or some, some foreign dignitary or, or the president or somebody like, I don't know, Bill Gates. Let's say Bill Gates, who has many billions of dollars, showed up. There's a sense in which, even though you know right here that he's just like I am, you would treat him differently. You'd be careful about it. The reality, the reality that Revelation is showing us is that somebody infinitely more important with, with more authority than everyone in all of history combined could have is with us, good call, is with us each Sunday in worship. And so because he's here, 
in control, has the authority, because he's present among us, how does that affect your worship, your behavior, your speech, the way you interact with people? Do you have this sense that he knows and watches? Because he says, verse 2, I know your works. I call them for what they are. I know your works. He says, your toil and your patient endurance. There's some of that endurance that we mentioned. And the second mention of it is in verse 3 here. Keep reading. He says, I know, there's that phrase again, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Now we don't know uh, exactly what the Ephesian church was experiencing in terms of its persecution. But we do know enough about the kind of persecution that the church was experiencing in that kind of day to know that Christians were being martyred right and left all the time. And so in the midst of that kind of persecution and suffering and difficulty, Jesus himself, who's walking among the churches, says, good job. You're enduring that kind of persecution with endurance and with patience. And so he says, good job. He also praises them uh, for the discernment part coming next here. Look at verse 2 again. This is the first mention of their wisdom in testing false teachers. He says, I know your works and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. Uh, the discernment piece is mentioned again in verse 6, which says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't exactly know what the Nicolaitans stood for. We suspect that it's probably uh, some sort of sexual immorality that they, what was infecting the churches at the time. So there's one other thing I want you to notice before we move on here, uh, before we move on to verse 4. Uh, this is a real cool feature in verses 2 and 3. And it isn't exactly like this in our English text, um, but it's pretty cool because it's one big long sentence in verses 2 and 3. It's one big long sentence, and there are nine ands, A-N-D-S. There are nine ands between each one of these positive statements that Jesus has made. He's saying, good job for this, and for this, and for this, and for this. And for this. And it's all these two categories of enduring patiently and being discerning about false teachers. And so he says, Good job for this, and for this, and for this, and for this, and for this. <laughs> but then comes verse 4. Boom. Broken up all those ands is the word but. But there is this one thing. This one thing that's an important enough thing to mention. He says, verse 4, but I have this against you, this one thing, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. <sighs> the creator of the universe comes here, perhaps or into your life, or into your family, or into your workplace, or into your marriage, and says, this is, this is awesome. Good, 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 good. And then he says, but. But I have this one thing. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Ouch. 
Notice it doesn't say you, you, you lost it. <laughs> it says you let go of it. You abandoned it. Some versions say that you left it. This is serious. Because he's saying this church has abandoned their wholehearted love for God and for people. There is this uh, interpretive question here about this verse as to whether or not they left a love for God or if they left a love for people. Uh, Most of the Bible nerds think that the answer is yes. That they left both their love for God and for people. But, but, the truth of the matter for us in Scripture and in our own lives is that there is no love for people that does not usher forth from a love from God first. And we'll see this in the greatest commandment in just a second here. Uh, Love for people horizontally always is real if it comes from a love for God and from God. You, You can't really love people if you don't love them like God loves them and like God loves you. You you won't do it. You can't do it. Instead of it, you will manipulate and control and weasel your way into making your horizontal relationships these, these people who act as messiahs for you when they cannot be. So, so love for God must be first and it must be foremost and it must, must inform everything else in terms of how we live out our love practically. And that's what we see from Jesus himself in Matthew 22. If you want to turn there, if you haven't yet. Matthew 22 is where we see that this obligation for the great commandment, the greatest commandment, comes from the words from the mouth of Jesus himself in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 38. This is Jesus talking with the Jewish teachers of the law, the the Pharisees, and they're testing him. It says this in verse 36. This is the Pharisee asking him. One of the lawyers, verse 36, says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They thought they were catching him. They, they thought they were getting him in a place that, you know, condense it all down for us, Jesus, because we know there are 600-something odd uh, laws. How, how, many, how many can you condense them down to, Jesus? Do you know this answer? And, of course, Jesus the rabbi, softball question, says, uh, yeah, Verse 37, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The love people part comes in verse 39 and ushers forth from a love of God. But the first and the great commandment is love of God. It is this sort of wholehearted, all heart, all soul, all, all mind kind of love that is what the Ephesians had abandoned. This is the every ounce of your being love that isn't satisfied with lowest common denominator kind of living. Any of us used to that? <laughs> like, let me, just, let me just get by. Like my goal is just to sort of get by And let life happen. 
This is the kind of love, Jesus says, that is the every ounce of your being kind of love that wants to bring your very best to God when you're teaching kids about Jesus in Sunday school. So you come prepared and you've, you've been ready and you've prayed about the content and you show up early so that you're there with a smiling face because those kids need to know about Jesus. And you, he, and you feel it here because you want them to. Not because... Somebody's got to fill in the hole. This is every ounce of your being love that is prepared when you are given a task in service and in ministry. And you use it as an opportunity to worship God with your very best. Is that what marks the way you live your life? Wholehearted on fire, passion to give God glory by what you do and how you speak and how you love people. Is your life, is your behavior motivated by that kind of wholehearted love or have you abandoned it? Are you serving out of drudgery and duty instead of a joy and a passion for Christ. When the question comes up, we need volunteers, do you sort of internally roll your eyes when there's another need presented for a children's worker or a volunteer? Do you come to worship? Are you sitting in these pews because you're supposed to? There's this expectation that you're supposed to be here? Or are you in these pubes today, right now, because there's a Holy Spirit fire in your belly? And you can't imagine going one Sunday without the opportunity to be a part of the body of Christ, to say, I love you, God, more than everything else. Jesus himself says that if your life doesn't flow out of a genuine love for God, first and foremost, then here he calls it for what it is in Revelation. It's fakery. It's fakery. And he takes it seriously. And he offers a solution <laughs> that, surprise, surprise, is the same solution it always is. The good news that he provides solution and redemption. The choice is given in verses 5 through 7 here. The choice is given in verses 5 to 7. It's a three-step process there and that one line in your study notes it says to remember, repent, and do the work. Look at verses 5 and following here. Just that first phrase in verse 5, it says this, remember, circle that word, it's important, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. This kind of remembrance here in Revelation is a, is a different way of thinking about remembering. This is a remembering of the gospel. In other words, this is remember from where you have fallen. And that's not a remembering how righteous you used to be. <laughs> that's not the remembering that this is. This is remember the heights and the glory of God from which every single one of us has fallen. That's what we're remembering. Romans 3.23, all have fallen short. 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, remember how far you are from God's perfection. Those are the heights from which we have all fallen. That's the nature of the place from which we have fallen. Our righteousness in comparison to His infinite glory and His majesty and His goodness and His perfect righteousness. Each one of us has fallen from an infinitely high place. And that's what we are called to remember here in Revelation. Simply put, here we are being given the choice of remembering the gospel or rejecting the gospel. And when you realize the heights from which we've fallen, then you repent. That word is in almost all of these seven letters, except for two of them. To repent is just to, to turn from the sinful ways. To turn from remembering your heights as if you got yourself there. <laughs> to turn from sinful ways to follow Christ. And then it says to serve. To do the works you did at first. To remember, to repent, and to do the works you did at first. The, the, the fix to an abandonment of one's first love for God is to remember the gospel. The simple message that God's righteousness is unattainable by us. And that turning from a life of self-righteous works means doing the work of loving God first and foremost. If, if a love for God isn't burning in your heart. It doesn't matter what work you do, how good you act, how much you make, how cool you are, how smart your kids are. You cannot and will not please God if you do not love Him first and foremost. And the alternative in this choice is not a pretty one. Look at the second half of verse 5 there. The second half says, If not, if you don't remember, if you don't repent, if you do not do the works you did at first, he says, If not, I will come to you and I will remove. I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Skip to verse 7. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This echoes the words of Christ in the Gospels. He uses it a lot. He says to hear, to understand, to respond. Uh, in other words, the, the one who has ears to hear what the Spirit is saying and speaking will understand and respond. And, and then it says those who hear are blessed. There's a promise at the end. It says to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation calls those who love God first and foremost, calls them conquerors. Conquerors. Who will, who will enjoy the uh, abundant life of perfect and forever relationship with God. Those who, those who love God with their whole heart will enjoy the abundant joy of a perfect 
relationship with God that will last forever. It's the promise of, of revelation. And it's the smelling salts to a life that's a, a ho-hum life without purpose, without, without a place that, that can live out with that kind of passion, uh, w- without a sense and vision for one's gifts and one's life and one's job and one's marriage. Revelation is, is speaking to us and saying, open your eyes to what I'm telling you. May we hear His words to us. May we see those places where we must remember and repent and do the works we did at first so that it will be about love of God first and foremost. Because a life lived for ourselves or anybody or anything else is wasted. It's not fun. It's boring. God tells us in Revelation who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be people who remember the gospel and who live out of that place. And that's what gives us that first love. Father in heaven, we are people who who so desperately need to be fed from the gospel. Make of us Think of us people who so treasure the truth that your righteous life counts for us that we would would risk it all, give it all away, use it all for your glory instead of our own. We ask that you would use the reading of these words and this message and this this book to us so that we would hear the words and keep what is written in it. Because the time is near and you have told us and you have warned us and you have given us the possibility to know you. So Lord, make us people who treasure you first and foremost. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.